Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome. You're listening to New Books in Gender Studies. My name is Shohini Chatterjee. I'm a doctoral student in Gender, Sexuality and Women's Studies at Western University. And I'm delighted to be in conversation today with Dr. Rachel Brule on her new book, Women, Power and Property, The Paradox of Gender Equality Laws in India, published by Cambridge University Press in 2020. Dr. Brule is Assistant Professor of Global Development Policy at Boston University. Her research interests revolve around comparative politics, international development, political economy, and institutions. Women, Power, and Property was awarded the American Political Science Association's 2021 Bluebird Prize for the Best Book in Comparative Politics. Heartiest congratulations, and welcome to the New Books Network, Rachel. Oh, thank you. It's just an honor to be here. Um, thank you so much for having me, Sohini. Thank you. Thank you very much for being here. Um, Could you begin by telling us a little bit about your intellectual journey as a political scientist? How did it lead you to India and how did that journey culminate in this book? Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you, Shohini. So um, it's a rather long and winding journey, (laughs) but I, I, I guess I would say I didn't intend to be a political scientist and I didn't intend to be um, working in India per se, but um, I knew that whatever I wanted to do was something to figure out how to make the world a little bit better, which in my mind meant figuring out how we could get closer to equal substantial or substantive uh, equality, um, really in a global sense um, where you know, each each individual has the opportunity to articulate and really realize the fullest version of themselves. Um, and I, I guess I started I started off by thinking that I could do that um, in a place like the United Nations um, that kind of has the global citizenry as its um, as its subject, <laughs> um, uh, and and found that the work that they were doing. I was with the International Labor Organization was just far, far detached from um, individual beings. Um, And so I made this roundabout path through first non-governmental organizations and then the U.S. government um, and ended up seeing that there were a lot of policies being made without any real sense um, of... um, of, uh, you know, uh, any real calculation of, of the impact those policies had or kind of bottom up approach to figure out, especially when it comes to these like big, t- big ideas like development, um, what what actually were the, the domains in which um, uh, there was some consensus for how that should work from the bottom up. Um, and so that's sort of what took me to academia in general um, was a sense to say, um, I think policy can make a big difference, but it's often formulated um, without any real attention to how it affects the people for whom especially development policies are meant to, uh, quote unquote, improve thinking about vulnerable citizens. Um, and so I, I was I, I came to India through work with the Poverty Action Lab um, based at MIT because I found out about their work in um development uh, studies program that I was at at London School of Economics and thought, okay, here, here's an organization that really does care about, um, you know, this sort of neutral assessment of the, the impact of policies. And, um, and they were generous enough to offer, offer me an opportunity to work in India um, based at their original office in Udaipur in Rajasthan. And um, so I started working with them there and just kind of carrying forward assessments and then got to work um, a bit more in uh, South India 
uh, with Sento and Mulanathan, uh, sorry, um, uh, on uh, and ICICI Bank trying to figure out if we there are ways to change incentives to support savings um, by especially rural populations in Tamil Nadu. And um, and and so I I kind of had this you know this window into some people's worlds and and wherever I went um, you know Poverty Action Lab doesn't pay much so I was living with families um, for the most part and um, and had the opportunity to start kind of investigating other contours of life in the midst of the projects I was helping to advance um, and uh, and I will and, and this is I think what brings me to really <laughs> the answer to the question you asked, which is, you know, um, why, why this work, um, in political science. And, um, just before I had, I'd come to India, I'd been working with, um, the Brookings institution and, um, the, uh, 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 collaboration of humanitarian organizations in Sri Lanka, um, uh, CHA or, um, uh, which, uh, and, and, at that time, the the president, um, uh, prime minister of Sri Lanka, to try to figure out um, how to address the crisis of internal displacement. And I went to different uh, camps for internally displaced persons and asked them what it would take for them to either return home or to relocate um, somewhere permanently where they felt safe. And they said property rights in their name. So when I had the chance to then work in India for this longer period of time, um, I started trying to investigate, you know, how property rights worked and whether um, uh, they were the most vulnerable citizens really had access to them. Um, and so that to me was kind of trying to to start to try to understand ways in which the state arbitrates these really important um, sources of power, of security, of identity. Um, and uh, and and kind of in, in searching for ways in which state action was really making a difference, um, I, I came across work by Sanchari Roy on the Hindu Succession Act and their amendments um, and and thought, wow, what a radical act by the state to try to equalize um, women's inheritance rights, uh, which, you know, in the United States is, is a fairly recent uh, uh, recent phenomenon as well. And um, and so I started trying to investigate how that worked in practice. Um, and I, I started talking initially to people at the World Bank who said, good news, <laughs> we found inheritance law works. Um, we'd love to collaborate with you, especially if you're going to actually do field work and just tell us, you know, um, why, why does this, this set of reforms work so well? Um, and that, that took me to the field and really trying to understand something that I think political science is kind of best best equipped to do, which is, you know, how, how is power negotiated? And, and, you know, the short answer being it's complicated <laughs> and there wasn't any kind of, uh, uh, immediate, uh, kind of, um, uh, um, automatic implementation of these, these reforms, which radically restructured access to an, an important form of economic, social, and political power, property rights. But, um, but, but thanks to political science, I did have the tools to try to investigate um, when and how how power actually did change hands. Right, that's that's so interesting. Um, I studied political science as an undergraduate, so this was absolutely fascinating. Um, um, your book focuses attention on women's political representation through quotas and gram panchayats. Um, I'm curious as to what led you uh, led you to make the choice of interrogating women's political participation at that level, and how did that choice structure the book? Yeah, um, again, I would say it was not my intention <laughs> coming into this project, and I think. Um, I, I try I try to be transparent about that in the book itself when I talk about my methods and um, and how I got to this question. Um, but so I would say I was really interested in in how you know this one piece of legislation uh, about property rights was implemented. And the first thing that I found on the ground was the you know the a, a plethora of places where this law wasn't implemented in any way, shape, or form. Um, and where the women who were intended, you know, the intended beneficiaries of these reforms um, had never even heard of them. Um, and so that kind of sent me on a hunt to try to figure out, you know, under what conditions 
were these rights actually realized? Um, and it was a long, <laughs> a long hunt over many years. Uh, but eventually, um, I was lucky enough to meet um, uh, female local elected officials and see things through their eyes and realized the world looked fundamentally different. Um, and not just, you know, I, I, I know one of the things you, you mentioned, you noticed was how I had, you know, women as representatives themselves see and use the state differently, but also how their constituents, you know, started to come fundamentally reconceive uh, the role of the state in their personal lives and in their, you know, really intimate personal lives and the negotiations they have behind closed doors in their homes. Um, and and it was those conditions where I realized, oh, you know, here, here are places where women are actually uh, proactively informed of their rights and actually have the space and have the opportunity and the resources to, you know, collectively brainstorm effective strategies for claiming those rights in ways that, uh, you know, in the book I use the term that uh, enable them to strike integrative bargains that benefit their entire family, not just themselves personally. Um, and so that was, um, I, I, I would say that one woman, Jamuna uh, Paruchuri, um, is, was was really deserves credit for having introduced me to um, a longstanding uh, uh, female Pradhan or Sarpanch uh, who she'd worked with for many years. And it was my repeated interactions with this woman that I started to see not just how she operated differently, but how her whole community um, really related to her in a fundamentally different way than uh, what I'd been seeing before, which was typically uh, with male local elected representatives. And so uh, you know, I think it's something about the um, the power of uh, these elected heads of government, even if, you know, the whole panchayat structure is relatively, in its current form, at least, is, is relatively new. This is 1993 onward. But, um, but, but seeing how villages themselves as centers of power could fundamentally change as a result uh, of who is elected to lead them. Um, open this window to me to to understand that um you know it, it's not just this naive world where you write a law and suddenly it changes the world it really does take pressure from within the state as well as outside the state to make that happen and and i was lucky enough to see that at work um in the case of of, of female sarpanches or pratans mm -hmm. Yeah, and I also feel that women um, are not studied enough uh, in their roles are not studied enough in in local governance, especially. So I I think that that makes your work really interesting. Um, so you also write that quotas for women in government is not only a way of achieving gender equality, but quotas also subvert hierarchies and reorganize power relations outside politics in favor of women. Um, and you emphasize that it changes the ways in which women occupy the public sphere and, and the nature of the private sphere as well, while it creates new public spaces for the benefit of women. Um, could you expand on this for our audience? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I, I guess, you know, I, I think you maybe get a sense of it in the book, but also how I just, this last question I answered, that it was kind of a surprise to me <laughs> to see that the state could transform as much as, um, you know, in my observations, what I did see. And, um, and yeah, I would say that, you know, reservations from what I saw are these quotas for women do fundamentally restructure the state in three important ways. Uh, so the first is their reconfiguration of public space. Uh, and they do so by uh, fundamentally changing expectations of who can approach the state and how they will be treated when they do so. Uh, the ways in which I saw this happen were um, related in part to just the structure of the meetings that women themselves were willing and able to lead. And so women would lead, uh, you know, let's say Gram Panchayat meetings, meetings of the uh, uh, that are supposedly open to the whole village, um, at times and in places that were safe um, and transparent for women. So these would be publicly announced. They would happen in daytime, you know, when you know when it's daylight, um, and in formal public spaces where um, there's an understanding that. Um, uh, these are these are appropriate spaces for women to attend, especially when you have a a, a female pradhan or sarpanch, uh, you know, presiding over the room. Um, and in contrast, 
what I saw with male uh, elected representatives uh, was that they would hold these meetings in in ways and at times that were convenient for them. Uh, this tended to be late at night, uh, you know, in in the back rooms of their homes, um, as opposed to in open public spaces. And so, while these are very convenient for men, uh, they're com- they're extremely inconvenient for women, and often physically unsafe. Uh, you know, the 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 risk of um, not just malicious gossip, but potentially physical or sexual assault um, was quite high. Uh, and so, um, you know, for rational self-interest, women aren't going to attend those meetings, um, at least not many, um, and, and not with the same level of confidence that they can when you have a woman sharing uh, the, the, the panchayat itself. So, so that's the first way that reconfiguration of public space is really meaningful. Uh, the second is that I saw them mobilizing women proactively uh, by creating new public spaces for women. And they do so, I think it's important to say, not just necessarily out of some deep well of altruism that, you know, the feminine psyche uniquely enables, uh, but rather for clear strategic uh, reasons in the sense that women upon taking uh, office as as sarpanches um, typically come with smaller political networks with, you know, uh, limited to no vote banks in the way that men typically have them, which much more limited at best support from political parties. Um, And so it's up to them to to actively uh, mobilize a new body of constituents, uh, not just to get them into office, uh, but to enable them to govern, uh, to get the critical mass of support uh, to push the substantive work of the government in a new direction. Um, And so they do that typically by organizing other women who, again, tend to be, um, as constituents, less attached to uh, predominantly male-led, male-run, male-targeted political parties uh, who uh, tend to be more accessible as well uh, to women when they are themselves, uh, uh, you know, reaching out as candidates uh, to citizens. And so... As a result, um, we see women as candidates interested in mobilizing other women, and then we see a differential advantage that comes from that mobilization amongst uh, female citizens. So the ways that women as candidates mobilize women as citizens is often by um, telling them about the rights that uh, they formally have uh, thanks to existing legislation that the state has passed, and also telling them how to make those rights meaningful, you know, the ways to claim those rights, um, as well as strategies for doing so. And when they uh, are, are doing so in the context of mobilizing large numbers of women, it means that you also see the activation of really important uh, political networks for women uh, that give them additional agency uh, to, 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 you know, to, to accomplish whatever goals they have personally, which may or may not be in line with a, a candidate's given goals. Um, and so, that mobilization um, creates new capacity for women to, to you know, achieve a range of, of aims. Um, and finally, the third thing that they do, which I think is the most radical and the most exciting, is to really repurpose the private sphere um, as a space uh, that is appropriate for uh, state mediation of fundamental rights, including rights to property. Um, and, and that uh, opening of the the space of the household um, for those negotiations means that there's a whole new way that women themselves can negotiate, not just in the the safety of their homes, but um, you know, without the kind of rancor, without the kind of conflict that is typically attached with um, you know airing a family's dirty laundry, with with bringing. Um, uh, uh, bringing internal family strife into the public eye, which um, often uh, puts women at a great disadvantage. Um, and so to be able to hold those negotiations within the household uh, means that there's a chance for collaboration. There's a chance for um, agreement of mutually beneficial goals uh, that's just much harder to do, regardless of who the parties are, once you enter the public space, once you enter the court courthouse um, or the panchayat office.
Absolutely. And um, building off of that, um, I wanted to ask, um, you write that reforms related to land rights and land inheritance offer possibilities of gender equity when enforced. Um, So how do you think this is being made possible through women's political uh, representation in India today? Yeah, so I would say, um, and, you know, tell me if you you are kind of having something in mind when you ask this question, but to me... um, I see this as very much kind of uh, the question at the core of the theory that I develop, which I, I call a gatekeeper theory of, uh, you know, that to explain the importance of of local political institutions. Um, and and here, I mean, you know, I'm looking at at it through the lens of gender equalizing land inheritance reform, but I think this is this is kind of salient for a much larger set of um, uh, of access to uh, to state legislative rights. Um, and so to to explain how this you know the state itself fundamentally changes, I think it's important to start off by saying, what states do, what, you know, how, what state action looks like in the absence of women. Um, and here, what I saw, uh, you know, in these, I mentioned, I started off going to village after village and finding women, you know, completely silent when I asked them um, about whether or not they were claiming um, these, these equal rights to inherit land. And, um, and as I kind of tried to trace the, uh, the story back to its start, um, really to me where things begin um, is with an extremely powerful agent of the state that we often pay very little attention to, which are local bureaucrats. And here, since I'm, I'm thinking about land, I'm thinking about um, land revenue bureaucrats. Um, and those are the individuals who are formally responsible with registering uh, rights to land and enforcing uh, the uh, you know, the letter of uh, these laws about who should inherit and how they should inherit. Um, and so those are the the individuals tasked with enforcing women's equal rights to inherit land. And yet when I spoke with them, I found that they very, very rarely did so. Um, and in trying to understand why, what I realized was that their incentives are just much better aligned with uh, male constituents, uh, because those individuals who are you know, typically uh, the individuals who are uh, the formal owners of property are the ones who are the traditional taxpayers with whom uh, these bureaucrats have frequent interactions, which are essential for their ability to secure revenue on behalf of the state. And so the success of those interactions is really important uh, to, as a facilitator uh, for them to be able to, to perform their work. Um, and so you know, the, the interests of, uh, of, of men in the locality are at the forefront of their mind. Um, in contrast, they rarely meet women, and those interactions bear much less weight since women are so much less likely to own property, since they're so much less likely to be the individuals paying taxes. Um, and so absent quotas, uh, you know, we we know still that there there is this relationship, often a fraught relationship between bureaucrats and, and local elected officials. Um, and so this is a moment where local elected officials could step in um, and could pressure bureaucrats to perform this important work that they're uh, they're tasked with performing to enforce gender equal inheritance rights. But when I spoke to men in these roles, they said they rarely did so. Um, and that, in fact, it was res- women's responsibility alone to claim these equal inheritance rights. And if women were so bold to do so, they would go on to say that they couldn't be held responsible for the consequences uh, of those claims, uh, that if any conflict were to result, that would be you know, on the woman's head. That would be uh, the woman's fault for anything that happened, and they wouldn't go out of their way to protect women. Um, and, uh, and so it, in light of kind of how these, these typically male uh, gatekeepers would respond, uh, this kind of official bias justified bureaucrats in action. So they would say that while they were very well informed of the Hindu Succession Act and, and the amendments to it, um, they, would, they would argue that they couldn't control the conflict that would result from women's claims to land, um, and therefore it wasn't in their interest to initiate those uh, those claims or even to inform women that they had the right to do so. 
Um, and so in that kind of vacuum of, uh, of political and bureaucratic action, uh, women not only were uninformed about their rights, but the women who did know the quantum of their rights uh, were extraordinarily reluctant to make any of those claims because they very rationally feared the consequences of doing so um, yeah. in the utter absence of support from public servants as well as elected officials. Um, and so in that context, I think it's it, it becomes clear uh, just how differently the state operates once you have a woman uh, who's elected to head it, uh, who actually sees the uh, the concerns of female constituents um, from a similar perspective, understands the gravity of these situations, and also um, from her own experience and the experience of of you know other women in in her life, understands. Um, the and has, has kind of built up skills um, for effective negotiation of contested rights uh, may not be pro- rights to property in her own uh, name, uh, but but what I did see was that um, female elected officials because of the ways they act differently as public servants, we're much more likely to hear about female constituents' claims. Uh, we're much more likely to take them seriously. And then because of the work they were doing to build up these uh, you know, these public resources for female constituents, uh, had a, a much more effective um, and successful set of strategies um, that they were willing to partner with female constituents to uh, uh, to enable them to realize these property rights. Uh, but but, but even, you know, it goes beyond property rights. So um, uh, they were much more likely to take seriously women's rights in general. And so ensuring that women's birth certificates were registered, ensuring that their mar- marriage certificates were registered in the village where they were born, not just the village that they were marrying into. So there was always a place that they could return to um, and uh, from which they could actually um, ensure that that their rights, um, you know, couldn't be erased. Um, in addition to ensuring that when they had property in those names, that those were those those claims were made formal, that those did become actionable rights. Yeah, that's so incredibly powerful, especially in the very mm-hmm. complex terrain in which these negotiations take place. Exactly. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, what I what I found there are so many um, powerful insights in your book. Um, I I really um, like the recurring uh, recurring sort of theme of care that um, is sort of binds the book holds it together. Um, you write that care labor is as much um, gendered as it's economic in nature within the familial realm and that increased political representation of women enables them to negotiate the terms of their duties, obligations, as well as responsibilities within the family. And that substantial shifts take place in how they exercise their agency. Um, would you like to expand on the political economy of care in India in relation to the shifting terrains of property rights and political representation? Mm. Thank you, Shohini. That's um, I really appreciate that question, and um, and to me, this is one of the like the the major terrains in which uh, you know um, for for I guess the you know battles of gender equality, class equality, caste equality, um, you know, and just so many dimensions. The the political economy of care is really central, and. You know, amidst the COVID pandemic, which was 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 not um, enforced when I was doing my research, I think it just it just magnifies um, the uh, the ways in which care is crucial, and also um, in which it's it's you know fundamentally undervalued um, across so many systems today. Uh, but yes, yeah, so let me try to um, to to summarize that. Um, in a, in a, in a or, or be articulate and also brief, but um, yeah. So what I see when I think about the political economy of care in India um, and, and its a relationship to political representation, um, I, I start off by thinking about um, the traditional entitlements that sons have um, to. And you know, here again, for me, the core is uh, is is thinking about property inheritance. But there is bound up with a much much broader set of entitlements um, to what I would call lineage, um, 
uh, to thinking about the, you know, the family's legacy, about its social reputation, uh, the networks, uh, both um, place-based um, as well as these the, these deeper familial networks, political networks, economic, um, potentially business uh, networks, um, as well as, you know, the physical space of the home um, are all things to which um, sons are typically entitled and daughters are not. Um, and, you know, all the, these, these meaningful entitlements are also associated with a reciprocal obligation for sons to care for their parents as they age. Um, and that means, you know, often being physically present in, um, uh, in the same home, um, as well as these sort of symbolic acts of care that sons perform. It's often, uh, you know, the daughter-in-law, the son's wife, uh, who, who does the physical work of caring for, uh, for parents' medical needs and, and just, you know, uh, nutritious needs, um, the love and affection uh, that are, uh, that kind of keep, uh, keep families together. Um, but those are things that are all um, at least symbolically assigned um, as duties to sons uh, who remain in the natal home, uh, who bring, uh, bring their wives into the natal home when they marry. Um, and, so it, it, it's kind of astounding how much all of those entitlements are destabilized by this one simple act, these uh, Hindu Succession Act amendments, um, which at least for India's Hindu population, um, you know, suddenly um, kind of retract that exclusive entitlement through at least, you know, across patrilineal uh, communities, uh, which are the, the, uh, the you know, the, the critical mass um, in mainland India, at least. Um, and so it, once that, that, that exclusive entitlement is retracted, um, what I was kind of shocked to see um, was uh, the, the scale at which sons renounced the, the reciprocal obligations. So the, the ways in which they saw that kind of, um, uh, social contract uh, as as a broken one, um, and so what I found is that in the presence of uh, of female elected representatives uh, uh, who could enforce daughters' equal rights uh, to inherit land, uh, sons were thirty six percentage points less likely to care for their elder parents. Um, and the way I could look at that um, with the data that I had was looking at whether son, ad adult married sons would co-reside with elder parents. And I made this kind of as sharp as possible by looking at um, uh, the, the behavior of the eldest son uh, in a family uh, for families with, with daughters uh, uh, for whom obviously equal inheritance rights are then relevant. Um, and so, so that, that is a massive shift um, in terms of the, the political economy of care within the families. And I think what was maybe even more shocking was the fact that it didn't just stop within a single generation, but that effect actually rippled across future generations. Um, so what I found was that the very women who themselves, you know, had, had suddenly come into uh, these substantially expanded uh, forms of, of material rights to um, inherit land uh, as mothers, then um, we see significantly less likely to give birth to daughters. So I saw uh, the probability that a daughter was born uh, again in the in the presence, um, uh, you know, or for for mothers. Uh, who were eligible for equal inheritance rights um, uh, with access to to female pradhans who could help them enforce them uh, were eight to eleven percentage points less likely to give birth to uh, to daughters uh, than women without this political voice and uh, these economic rights um, and uh, and and so this suggests um, that you know these uh, rights affect people in complex ways, you know, not just, we're not just potential rights bearers, uh, but we're also, uh, you know, potentially affected by how, uh, how uh, others entitlements shift. And so what I saw here was that um, women themselves were afraid of being abandoned um, in their own old age uh, by sons who, uh, who didn't see this, this traditional social contract as relevant, uh, who would be no longer willing to care for them if there were uh, daughters in the family with equal rights to inherit land. Um, and so while I see that 
that propensity for female infanticide lessen for for younger the youngest generation of uh, of mothers in the data I was looking at mothers who are under 36 and then you know that's still a- able to give birth to future children so you know there's a chance this might change in the future but I would say as we look at you know the immediate aftermath of these legal reforms um, these these are massive forms of backlash that come from this disruption um, of, of traditional systems for organizing care. Right. Thank you so much for, for that answer. Um, now to get into the crux of your book, you, you introduce us to gatekeeper theory, um, which you develop in the book to understand how women's political representation informs their economic agency. Um, could you elaborate on what this theory is and how does it give shape to the book? Yeah, so um, I mean, I feel like I might be a little bit repeating myself because <laughs> I, I, you know, interpreted a, a, an earlier question of yours um, to to try to explain it. But um, yeah, I mean, I think uh, to me the the crux of of political gatekeeper theory um, is, as you said, bringing gender back into our understanding of how the local state operates, um, uh, and so. Um, seeing uh the the imposition of reservations or you know quotas for women um at, in in indian local government um as um as a as a massive uh potential shift in how the state operates uh so uh shifts um, not just which state uh, uh citizens approach the state uh but how the state itself works to arbitrate rights so uh, by arbitrating rights, um, not just in the public domain, uh, but in uh, the private domain of the household. So, uh, you know, this this feminist um, uh, slogan that the personal is political, I think really becomes substantially important uh, when we look at reservations which shift the gendered identity of gatekeepers, um, of these uh, sarpanches, pratans, presidents who uh, really are um, uh, at the crux of, uh, of, of not just distributing public goods, um, but also um, of, uh, of arbitrating citizen rights. Right. Um, you also write that oppressed caste women were able to access land um, owing to increased political participation of women um, through quotas. So um, this made me wonder if uh, quotas and women's political representation also have the potential to change gender as well as caste dynamics in India. Um, from your field work, have you seen women's political representation challenge the caste system as well? Yeah, absolutely. And um and I guess I would say yes in two ways. <laughs> so, um you know, I think uh, there's there's some really beautiful radical work uh that that goes back a long way in India theorizing exactly why women should uh uh you know, women's political power and social power that that comes with it um has the potential to really um, uh, break down the hierarchical system of caste. And I here I really like um, Uma Chakravarti's work, uh, where she locates control over women as uh, the heart of the historical development of the caste system, or what she calls uh, Brahmanical patriarchy, um, with in, in the sense that given that group purity is kind of the uh, central principle of the uh, caste system, uh, that this is really the enforcement mechanism here um, is, the, is really control over women, the physical segregation um, and endogamy. Um, and so the ways that this kind of uh, system is safeguarded is by restricting women's movement as literally points of entrance into the caste system. Um, and so you know, if we take that the the that system seriously, then I think it makes clear the power of nonconformist women to break down uh, Hindu orthodoxy from its you know the very core out. Um, and so, in terms of the work that precedes this, that I think is important to mention, I would say Irma Klotz-Figueres finds that radical reforms, so including the Hindu Succession Act amendments, including land reforms more generally, are much more likely to be passed by 
women from scheduled castes or scheduled tribes than they are by uh, forward caste women, um, or even other backward caste women. Uh, um, and so, you know, I think there's already some evidence, uh, that says, uh, caste is important, um, as a part, you know, as you know, that, that we, we have these multidimensional identities that intersectionality matters. Um, and so we do have to think about how people operate, um, both from their perspective of, you know, the caste privileges they may have, um, as well as from the gender privileges they may have. Um, and so, so one way I see change um, is is you know women uh, who are uh, who rise to the level of uh, these these elected positions from scheduled castes or tribes. And so I I investigate this a little bit more in ongoing work with um, Elise Toth, uh, who's a, a PhD student at Stanford now, and um, and what we see uh, fundamentally different social relations where you have two-dimensional uh, quotas. So quotas for women as well as members of scheduled castes or tribes that mean you have a scheduled caste or tribe woman uh, in office. Um, that's where we see um, fundamental shifts in uh, women, uh, and women's political participation, and we see um, uh, significant reductions in um, discrimination, particularly for uh, members of scheduled castes and tribes and and women from these groups um, where we see uh, women from scheduled castes and tribes saying it's much easier to interact with other castes in public, where we see um, resistance to intercaste marriage drop significantly um, and where we see um, significant drops in levels of uh, caste conflict. Um, so that's that's one piece of the story. Um, the other piece of the story is what happens for constituents based on their caste. Um, and uh, here, what I see is um, there's kind of this, I would say the strongest uh, backlash comes against women with um, substantial enforceable property rights. Um, so um, uh, particularly um, uh, women from, uh, I would say, higher class groups, particularly wealthy groups uh, who have um, land holding of at least eight acres or more in their families, um, but also women from uh, upper castes. Um, in contrast, uh, what I see for women from scheduled castes is um, that wh whereas in general I see backlash for women based on the quantum of the rights they might inherit, so for women who do have access to uh, equal uh, gender equal inheritance, what I see for women from scheduled castes is there's backlash even to symbolic rights, even prior to, um, uh, even for women who aren't eligible to uh, gender equal inheritance rights. Um, and so um, in some ways, while the quantum of the backlash is pretty, you know, potentially uh, uh, is, is, uh, the, you know, the coefficients are higher. This is potentially um, a broader number of women who are affected by backlash from upper castes. What we see is just even um, a much more restricted voice um, to even claim sub symbolic rights to land amongst women from uh, scheduled castes. And I would say, uh, you know, the, the number of places that have um, these two-dimensional quotas for women from scheduled castes are still relatively small, but as uh, exposure to uh, governance by scheduled caste women grows, my hope would be that we see increasing benefits from women from these, uh, you know, uh, traditionally extremely oppressed caste groups. Right. Um, I want to stay on the question of backlash um, for a while. Um, you bring out the fact that there's a lot of resistance to women taking up space and fighting the good fight for land inheritance reform. Um, through insights uh, gleaned from the uh, field, could you tell us how this resistance has been and is being countered by women leaders and what political and economic effects has this created for Indian politics um, today? Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I would say um, one thing I want to maybe say first <laughs> about resistance um, is specifically the resistance that female political leaders themselves face, which I think um, is really quite extraordinary. And uh, perhaps because, as you mentioned earlier, we don't <laughs> we don't focus enough on gender. Um, the, the, the documentation of this, I think, is um, uh, less careful than it could be, than an ideally it will be in the future. Um, but uh, it, a, a report in UN, UN Women 
um, from a few years back, uh, had this quote by Asha Kotwal, who mentioned that backlash begins from the moment that uh, a woman steps into electoral politics. Um, and so I think, you know, for better or worse, female elected representatives have um, a, a high levels of expertise in, in recognizing and um, effectively responding to backlash um, uh, by, because of the nature of um, the challenges they face personally. Um, but, but to say, I think what you wanted me to say a little bit more about was um, the ways in which female elected officials help their constituents uh, address backlash, uh, the ways in which they encounter it um, and what they do about it. Um, and so, um, you know, one of, one of the stories that I mention um, from, from this two years of field research, so I'm, you know, I'm happy to share more, but um, I would say just one was, uh, was this really um, tragic case of, of this woman um, named uh, Sunana, who, uh, who did learn uh, about uh, her inheritance rights, um, in, in part thanks to uh, a female Pradhan. Um, and so she herself claimed those rights, but um, she, um, and, I, and I realized now I probably should have said a, a bit more when you asked me about gatekeeper theory to just say um, a little bit more about the mechanics of how f female gatekeepers operate. And um, and so let me preface her story by saying just a little bit more on that front, which is um, that I find, um, you know, while female gatekeepers enable women to claim rights, uh, whether or not they do so effectively, uh, female constituents do so effectively, uh, depends on the bargaining power uh, they have within their household. Uh, so I find women uh, who are not yet married have uh, ha have a significant amount of po uh, bargaining power because they have something of value to trade with their family members. Um, so in exchange for these claims to inherit property rights in their name, they can give up something of value, which is monetary dowry, which despite being illegal, um, as I'm sure you're well aware of, um, is still widely exchanged. And in fact, um, if we can believe uh, surveys that have been done, it looks like uh, there it's actually um, dowry is go growing more rather than less popular and larger rather than smaller over time. Uh, and so for women who aren't yet married, um, you know, in particular, thanks to the, uh, the assistance of uh, female Pradhans, um, they can effectively uh, make these negotiations, which I, I call um, they can strike these integrative bargains, these welfare enhancing bargains, which not only benefit them by having land inheritance in their name, um, but also benefit their families by enabling them um, to forgo these extremely um, uh, onerous uh, uh, monetary costs of, of, of providing dowry on their daughter's behalf. Uh, to to their you know their in laws uh, to to the daughter's uh, uh, marital family um, and so uh, for those families uh, the the quantum of their material debts can actually diminish and not only does it does it mean they're kind of financially in the clear but it means they also then have daughters who remain in some meaningful part uh, members of the family and so they have the opportunity to share burdens of care. Uh, with their brothers, which I find is hard for women to do in exactly the same way that uh, that their brothers do. So they often can't um, reside in the marital home because there are lots of other really sticky um, norms about uh, uh, marriage arrangements, um, but they can fin financially provide for their parents um, and they can maintain, maintain closer uh, uh, you know, emotional relationships, um, thanks to the grounding and the material strength that property rights give them. Um, and so, you know, I found a number of cases of women who were able um, to effectively claim, claim rights without breaking family relationships when they had this bargaining power. Um, the women who really bore the brunt of resistance uh, were the women without these bargaining power. And so these are most clearly the women who have already married. Um, those women have already accepted dowry, though it typically is not held by women. It's, you know, held by their parents-in-law, um, or it's often a large bulk goes to uh, to marriage celebrations, and then you know it's gone, it's spent. Um, and so, 
uh, when women go back to their family to uh, to claim uh, inheritance, it's seen as a double burden on the family. It's seen as a um, as, as a fundamentally unfair uh, material cost that uh, that that families are forced to to spend on daughters who've already left the household, uh, who aren't providing the same kinds of support uh, for uh, the extended family that sons are. Um, and so I mention all of that in preface uh, to 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 give you a sense for. Uh, the severity of the da- backlash uh, that I saw in the case of Sunana that was unfortunately um, repeated across many, the case of, of many women, many families who I spoke with. Um, so when this particular woman, Sunana, um, uh, demanded her share uh, of her her recently deceased father's land, um, uh, her, uh, her, her, her family told her, We've already sold land to, uh, you know, to finance marriages, uh, to finance dowries for her sisters. Um, and even though she hadn't married, uh, she hadn't uh, uh, yet received um, land. She was past the age of marriage, so she was past the age at which um, these kinds of bargains were expected to be struck. And uh, and so uh, her her brothers said, you know, it, it's too late. Uh, we, we haven't saved these resources for you. Um, and, and you can't make this request of us. And so um, not only did they chase her out of the home, uh, but they physically beat her uh, to really within an inch of her life. And so the difference that a, a, a female Sarpanch made at that point um, was to step in and to start negotiating on her behalf. Um, and so uh, she was able to gain a portion um, of uh, her ancestral home um, for herself as well as for her mother. Uh, she was able to get access to state resources, a pension, um, and subsidized food, um, and also to start up uh, with meaningful stunts for for her own business, for a tailoring business. Um, and so this enabled her to survive um, in the face of this massive resistance from her family. Um, uh, I would say the you know the the resources and the kind of response, the kind of proactive response to backlash that that female sarpanches or pratans were able to um, enable, uh, you know, was much greater for women uh, who were who were at a, at a marital age, um, where families were were starting to think about um, the the quantum of dowry that they were willing to exchange for their daughter's you know future welfare, and and those were the women who really. Um, saw fundamentally different futures, not only with the security of of, of land in their name, um, but also with the opportunity to pursue uh, higher education, um, to think about a much different set of uh, potential husbands, um, to think about waiting to marry, uh, to think about moving to different places for careers as well as for marriage. And so, uh, you know, the the quantum of the um, of the support and their resources, women with bargaining power gained. Um, was something that I would say was was often unimaginable for women a generation before them. Absolutely. This is so interesting and, and thought-provoking. Um, there's a chapter in the book that uh, where you explore the complex gender and caste dynamics in Kerala's matrilineal communities with regards to inheritance and property rights. Um, could you reflect on the differences and impact inheritance reform uh, has had on matrilineal versus patrilineal communities and how has women's political representation um, through reservation influenced the former in particular? Yeah, um, I mean, I think Kerala is such a fascinating case um, in in the sense that this is the first state um, to change inheritance law. Um, but, but, you know, as you allude to, um, this this change is is really distinctive, um, and and the main reason that's distinctive is because of uh, Kerala's matrilineal societies, um, and um, and so in this case, um, while it's typically lumped in um, with with uh, the subsequent state based amendments to um, uh, to equalize women's rights to inherit land, what happens in Kerala is actually um, you know, significantly different in um, that it dispenses um, uh, with the Hindu Succession Act altogether, and um, and and the reason behind this um, was really uh, the kind of final blow 
to the legal bases of, of matrilineal in Kerala, um, uh, which were already weakened um, by uh, British colonial rule. Uh, but in this case, um, you know, the, the final blow came from um, uh, essentially young men um, within matrilineal uh, kinship groups within uh, Taravads, who they themselves, you know, with this newfound, uh, you know, kind of newly provided access uh, to education through um, uh, colonial uh, power centers, um, suddenly saw the world opening in some ways. They uh, they saw new careers um, opening them uh, for them in the colonial bureaucracy that hadn't existed before, um, and they also saw a completely different set of gender relations. Um, one that I would say the British colonial powers were muscularly promoting uh, male dominance um, and and really disparaging um, these uh, these outposts of female dominance in in matrilineal systems. Uh, and so so this sort of uh, resistance was was you know uh, significantly nurtured uh, by uh, by colonial powers for their own interests for sure. Um, but so what you see is amongst, um, in particular, um, some of the more privileged um, matrilineal groups, uh, the Nair uh, caste, uh, you saw uh, young men having these new accesses uh, to channels of power, uh, but then looking back at the matrilineal uh, uh, structures for organizing uh, property and um, realizing that the material base for their their future life uh, was was extremely limited uh, because of uh, the ways in which property was controlled you know, not just traveling through the, the matrilineal, through the female line, uh, but controlled by a senior male uh, head of the Taravad um, with, with, you know, little to no opportunity uh, for young men to access uh, property and the kind of uh, personal advantage, uh, personal advancement um, that, that selling that property, that privatizing that property um, could enable. Um, and so um, you saw... Um, uh, uh, um, Brahmin uh, matrilineal men um, uh, really pointing to the ways in which um, some uh, some women uh, in in Kerala's matrilineal system uh, were were um, disadvantaged, um, often you know with with limited to no access to marriage, with uh, 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 for women in systems with uh, limited to no access to property. They said, "Look, we've got to we've got to uplift these women, and the way we need to do that is by essentially um, uh, eliminating the matrilineal system of of property ownership." Um, and uh, and and they were successful at, at doing so, sort of symbolically um, on on behalf um, of uh, of you know a subset of of disadvantaged women, um, but. Uh, um, uh, it, it, I, I would say, in a in a really false uh, kind of um, process of of acting uh, symbolically on behalf of um, uh, Nambudiri women, um, but really for the advantage of um, of privileged Nair caste uh, men who who saw a way to um, essentially privatize what had been collectively held uh, land uh, for their personal advancement. Right. Um, what I found particularly jarring in the book was the fact that the crime of sex selection can take the form of backlash against women's increased political representation and pronounced economic agency. Um, and you note that there is no evidence to suggest that quotas can end this crime, but um, is there a possibility for sex selection to be eradicated if women gain more uh, bargaining power. Could you talk a little bit about the life-affirming possibilities that women's political representation and right to inheritance can generate in the long run? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think um, it's uh, because it is so radical, um, you know, both both of these dimensions of change, um, uh, women's um, really... Entrance now we see quotas for uh, for women reservations for women um, really at fifty percent in in many Indian states now 
um, that, that this is fundamentally overturning at least the recent past of, uh, of uh, male dominance in politics um, uh, in, in the traditional appointed panchayats before uh, constitutional amendments, uh, you know, formalized elected panchayats. Um, and so this, this is one way where um, women's agency is fundamentally shifting, um, not just to implement laws, but to write them and, um, and to, to fundamentally redistribute core resources um, to, to, you know, state collected taxes, as well as to private property. Um, and, and that in conjunction um, with the, the enforcement of uh, individual women's uh, rights to inherit property, um, I do think enables fundamental shifts in, in how power operates. Um, so in terms of the life-affirming possibilities, um, I mean, the maybe let me talk about it from kind of one point of entrance, which is how women as elected heads of local governments start to enforce a different set of, uh, of, of much older reforms, which are um, reforms that uh, prohibit child marriage. And while this is something that uh, Sarpanches or Pradhans are all formally tasked with doing, I only heard when I asked uh, uh, Sarpanches about what they would do, I only heard female Sarpanches um, uh, uh, mentioning this is one of their responsibilities. And what I heard from a number of Sarpanches um, was not only that this was something that they would do if it happened to come to their attention, um, uh, of a particularly egregious marriage that had been arranged, but on a regular basis, they made it their duty to attend all marriages, <laughs> all marriage ceremonies, find out when they were happening, where they were happening, and to be present for them, um, and and thus to be able to head off child marriages before they were occurred. Um, and if if there's one thing that I think fundamentally changes the opportunities that a, a woman faces, um, it's it's how and when her marriage occurs. Um, and so I, it just reminds me of, of one thing a group of, of mothers said when I asked them about whether they thought their daughter's lives would be better, the same or worse than their own lives. Um, they answered, well, we don't know. We don't know who they're going to marry. Um, and so just that opportunity to ensure that a woman doesn't marry before she is is uh, uh, is an adult who has the agency to decide whether or not a given uh, partner um, will really be, uh, you know, a supportive one in her life. Um, you know, a, a woman who actually has the opportunity um, to pursue as much education as, as she feels is right for her before making the decision about whether or not to marry. I think that opens up a huge expanse of possibilities that women who are, you know, uh, enter arranged marriage at a young age never have the opportunity to even, even imagine, um, let alone um, decide upon. Absolutely. Um, we are almost nearing the end of this fascinating episode. But before we conclude, would you like to tell us what you're currently working on? Oh, thank you, Shohini. Yes, I would love to. <laughs> so um, there, um, there are really three big things that I, um, they all kind of have their roots in this project. Um, but um, take me in slightly different directions. So the one that's most closely linked to this book um, is, is joint work with uh, Simone Chauchard um, uh, and Alyssa Hines. And um, what we have been working to investigate for a few years now um, is, is one of the responses that I got when I um, would tell people um, across almost any any city or, or town or village in India about about my work, um, I would often get the response, "Yeah, but you know, what about what about the Pradhan Patis or the Sarpanch Patis? Isn't it just you know the husbands are really doing the work? These reservations don't really empower women; they empower their husbands." Um, and so, uh, what what Simone, Alyssa, and I have been working to do in Maharashtra uh, is is to really map. The extent of a female and male um, political agency after they're elected, and to do so, you know, across caste lines. Um, so to see not just what do these sarpanches know about um, the the scope 
of their um, of their powers and their duties. Uh, but you know, how often do they actually hold the checkbook? How often do they raise the village flag when there's a a, a village ceremony? How often did they meet local bureaucrats? Uh, did they meet higher higher level affected elected officials? And when there are deliberations over how to use state funds within the panchayat, you know, to what extent did they have a voice um, in those decisions? And um, and so we've been working to map uh, those those dynamics. Um, uh, and it's been slowed down to due to COVID, but um, we're, we're nearly through that um, across five districts and in, in Maharashtra. And um, and also to see what happens when you actually start to shift the rules of deliberation uh, over in, in, in local government policymaking? Um, so in Masik Sabhas and these uh, um, much more frequent uh, meetings that happen uh, that where decisions are made about exactly how to allocate uh, local government resources, uh, we see what happens when uh, we shift the rules of deliberation just a bit um, to ask that everyone voice their preferences before they start the conversation, as opposed to just, you know, kind of an organic beginning of the conversation. And we find that just that small shift in the rules of deliberation significantly increases women's voice in decision making. Um, so so that's, you know, that's, that, that's one story where we're really trying to look at um, the ways in which uh, what we call proxy pro- politics are operating, not just within families, but really within politi- the structure of political institutions themselves in contemporary India and trying to figure out what can we do. Um, one of the interventions we're also working at, uh, at investigating um, is in collaboration with uh, Bhumi Purohit, who's uh, just about to join uh, Georgetown as an assistant professor. And uh, we're working with uh, the Self-Employed Women's Association, SEBA, um, to, to see what happens if we enable um, peer uh, peer mentoring through um, you know groups regular groups um, of uh, experienced female sarpanches and newly elected female sarpanches um, where you know they use uh, their collective experience to brainstorm uh, how to address the problems they face practically in governing as well as um, kind of the broader, uh, creating the broader structures of power that enable them uh, to articulate their voice and um, influence governance in the way they're elected to do. Um, so that's one really exciting set of projects I'm working on. Um, and another one um, is uh, to look at um, what is happening, um, uh, again, with uh, reservations um, when they're implemented across more than one dimension. So looking beyond simply the impact of gender reservations, but also you know the, the confluence of gender and caste relations um, with Ali's Toth at Stanford. Um, and there we really do see the potential for um, the transformation of social relationships uh, where two-dimensional quotas are in place. In contrast, where we look at um, one-dimensional quotas. So uh, primarily we're looking at scheduled tribe quotas, but also we see this for scheduled caste quotas. Um, that's where we actually see a great deal of backlash and we see um, a real shift um, away from backlash and, and towards, uh, you know, fundamental social um, uh, uh, support across caste groups uh, when we have two rather than one-dimensional quotas um, implemented. And um, the last project, um, some of it is uh, solo and some of it is joint with uh, Akshay Dixit, uh, who's a PhD student at Harvard. Uh, but we're, we kind of moved to look at the case of Bangladesh and um, look at the impact of climate change as well as COVID um, on uh, shifting gendered systems of power um, at the local level across uh, urban and rural Bangladesh. And, um, you know, one of the exciting things we see is where we see um, climate-induced disruption, as well as in some cases, uh, COVID-induced disruption, that um, in the cases where it really um, expands female mobility by um, catalyzing male out-migration, we see much higher levels of female engagement in um, in local politics um, and uh, and and kind of a greater greater imagination and action um, in fav- favor of broader systemic change for 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 deeper forms of equality. Uh, so those those are the things on my mind that I'm I'm really um, excited and, and honored to be able to work on with with really fantastic people. 
These are absolutely exciting and critically urgent projects. And I hope mm. to sometime have you back again to talk about one of these projects. Oh, and I'm so glad you. that that um, you interrogate questions that are not interrogated very often in, in politics, um, especially with regards to gender and caste. And, um, and I want to thank you for the emotional and the intellectual labor it takes to, to pursue these projects. Um, and I'm so glad that uh, we could have this conversation today. Me too. Thank you so much, Shohini, really, for your emotional and intellectual labor on these all these fronts too, really. Oh, it, it was an absolute honor. Thank you so much.